Hello, I'm James Griffin, and this is the Mission Motorsport Podcast. Aimed squarely at our beneficiaries as an engagement tool first and foremost, but also anyone who wants to know more about the community that we serve. Today, I'm talking to retired Royal Navy pilot, Lieutenant Commander Mark Brayson. Mark served just under 30 years in the fleet air arm, predominantly as a flying instructor on helicopters, before moving onto fast jets. A supporter and advocate for Mission Motorsport, Mark also played a pivotal role in my own journey into aviation, and I still refer back to the lessons that he taught me about keeping calm when it all starts to go a bit wrong. We talk about everything from students fighting him for control of the aircraft, forging an identity after military service, and how he came to work as head of VIP for arguably the world's most recognisable sports car manufacturer. Mark, good afternoon. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us. So today we have Mark Brayson, formerly Lieutenant Commander, Helicopter pilot, fast jet pilot, and Aston Martin owner. Mark, tell me about yourself. So I joined the military, and we'll focus on that, I suppose, initially, in 1987 uh, as a young, able seaman. And then, oddly, somebody thought I had a bit of potential, so they grabbed me and um, sent me to Dartmouth in 1990. And what's Dartmouth for anybody who doesn't? Dartmouth is the uh, basically the equivalent of Sandhurst and Cranwell, so it's the officer training area. So I'd been selected to get a commission, um, so off I went uh, with a view to becoming air crew, and then went through Dartmouth, uh, did grading, passed that, and then started flying training. Um, so that all happened around very early 90s. So 1990, I started flying, um, and from there, really, I bounced from a different aircraft type to a different aircraft type. So I went initially through the Sea King and then went down to Portland to find the Lynx. From the Lynx world, I then stepped into something that was, was going to form the biggest part of my career, really, which was instructing. So I became an instructor in, in 99 uh, and really went in and out of instructional jobs pretty much right the way till the end. And when was um, the end? Say again. And when was the end? Uh, 2017, I want to say. No, that can't be right. Yeah, it could be, actually. So it's just under 30 years that I'd done. Yeah, 2017, February 2017, I left. Um, so it was a long, old stint, really. Um, but do you know what? Looking back, it was just brilliant. There was just so much variety to it. And I think that was the, that was the joy of naval aviation in those days is we had a fair amount of different aircraft that you could fly yeah so i bounced around those i think with the instructional side of it you were either doing uh, the bit where you and i met which was basic rotary wing and advanced rotary wing we'll, we'll get onto that later, that later. <laughs> um and then and then oddly i ended up flying a fast jet as well towards the end so so to say that it was wide and varied would be an understatement it was absolutely brilliant um but actually 30 years was was enough for me and i i, I ended up voluntary leaving because i damaged my neck and i lost my flying um, medical mm. and that was the end of it so um whilst the navy wanted to keep me on i uh I, it wasn't ready for me cool we'll get on to the injury bit uh, later on because i think that that is a crucial part of the decisions that you make going into civilian life and how that affected you at the time i want to go right back to the start so before you'd even joined the navy 
as a young lad, was it always your aspiration, firstly, to join the armed forces, never mind the Navy? Top Gun. That's all I've got to say to you. Um, do you know what? I, I was always mega, mega interested in planes and fast jets and stuff, stuff that flew. I had models all over the, the you know, the ceiling and the wall, airfix everywhere. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was genuinely Top Gun that really, I thought, oh, I love that. Love it. So, um, didn't the US Navy have something like a 60 or 70 percent increase? It was enormous, mate. They just in had recruitment. this influx of people who wanted to get half naked, do volleyball, high five, get the hot chick, and then fly fast jets around irresponsibly. Um, and and uh, yeah, they've had a massive recruitment push, and I, th- and I think the same for us to a certain extent. You know, I guess, I guess the Navy and the Air Force in particular with fast jet being, would have had people like me who thought this is cool, I want to get on with it. So um, so that was it. But then I didn't really think about what I needed to join as an officer and whether I, and, and actually I had one of those classic moments where I thought there's no way on this earth that I could ever fly a, a helicopter or a jet in the military. It's never, ever going to happen. So I ended up just joining. And I say just, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I joined as a, as a naval seaman. Well, in fact, I joined as a seaman operator, which is a slightly odd rank. It makes it sound like you're working in a sperm bank, but... Um, you then specialise in whatever it was, and I specialise in electronic warfare. Um, so I was I was busy sitting there analysing other ships and aircraft radars, which actually stood me in pretty good stead for later on in life. Because of course, when you're looking, you know, it's all about emissions and all the rest of it. And um, and and several of the aircraft I flew had a reasonably good EW suite, so it was quite nice to be sort of on top of that. Which what's was a bit EW, odd, really. What's an EW suite? So electronic warfare, so um, the ability to analyse other people's radars whilst you're airborne and know who's looking at you, um, know where they are roughly, um, and then know what to do about it if if it if it's a horrible one that is locking you up or... or you know, so this, or, is, this is another aircraft with radar and you're detecting that it's looking at you with radar? Yeah, and also if a ship's looking at me with its radar as well. So any, any, any radar emission within a certain range, I would be able to see on the display and be able to analyze to a certain extent, not as deeply as you would do on board a ship, because you've got an enormous computer and a massive ship and all the rest of it. Um, in the links in particular, you know, you just have a fairly small little EW suite, but it was pretty good. And I think the more you got to know it and the more comfortable you were with it, the better you, you could appreciate what was around and about. So it was, it's front-mounted, uh, right. pretty much sits on top of the instrument panel. So it was orange crop, it was called in those days, um, but, but not straight too far into the names of things. But, um, but the, yeah, it basically sat on top of, the, you, you, you remember the Lynx combing, it basically sits on the top in the middle, and it's, it's for both to operate, so the, the right-hand seat and the left-hand seat. Um, and you could filter what was coming in, you could have the audio up or down, and it depended on where you were and what you were doing. But the reality is, if your ship was, let's say you launch from the ship in the middle of nowhere, it's got no radars on whatsoever because it wants to say stay undetected. You go off, you can then hoover up all that information that's around there, but the ship will be doing the same because, of course, it's got its own EW kit. Um, but it's really quite useful, you know, certainly to know who was out there and who was looking at you. But of course, the problem was if their radar wasn't on, you didn't know they were simple. That's fascinating. So, how long did you do that for? before you decided, do you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to become a pilot? So I was, I was in the lower deck, as we call it, for uh, just under three years. So it was, it was even when I joined HMS Rally, which is 
the very, the, which is your able seaman basic training establishment. I had my interview with my first boss and he said, did anybody ever mention going straight to Dartmouth? And I said, no, 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 no. And they said, ah, okay, well, we'll look into that. Crack on with what you're doing, but be aware there may be a way that we can get you to become an officer. So I think early on, it was fairly clear that I'd probably been slightly misguided by the careers office. I think a little bit of bombs on seats, a little bit of numbers. But in hindsight, would I have changed it? Absolutely not, because that was fundamental to know exactly what the boys and girls were going through, know what it's like to live in a big mess deck of 30 or 40 people running the routines on board ship and, and having to go through all of those things that you do as a junior aide, as an officer, you need to understand and appreciate that. And you'll know that from your time, but you know, the, your best, probably some of your best officers were LA officers, I would imagine, because they are, you know, they're the guys that have seen it and, and done it, you know, um, to a certain extent. Like yes, to, to, an, to an extent. <laughs> what did you, for people who don't know, what is the difference between being, obviously an, an able seaman is non-commissioned, and as a commissioned officer, you hold the Queen's Commission. But what is the difference in the lifestyle day to day on board a ship between what you would refer to as the lower decks and the officers? Mm. Interesting one, actually. So, but it's very, very much branch dependent. So it depends on what job you're doing on board that ship. So when I was an able seaman, you would either be sat in the ops room analyzing radars. And depending on the routine, you would either be doing that for six or 12 hours a day. Or if you weren't doing that, you'd be outside and you'd be painting parts of the ship. All right. So that, that was kind of life as, a, as an able seaman. The only time I ever went on board a warship as a commissioned officer was as a pilot. And when you are a Lynx pilot on board a, a, a ship, what we call as a small ship, so that's either a frigate or a destroyer, not an aircraft carrier. So it's got one aircraft. Rather unbelievably, it's also only got one pilot. And I was it. So you don't carry a spare pilot. So if the pilot doesn't work, then the, the aircraft doesn't fly. Often, if you were a, an instructor, for example, you might get a, what you would term as a P2. So somebody who would join you for six months just to, just to learn on-the-job training as to how to fly from the ship. Um, so the routine for that would be very much flying-based, of course, with the, with the associated briefing and debriefing. But I guess what I'm getting at, it wasn't a set routine. So it was very, very flexible because you'd need to achieve certain things per month in your flying in order to remain current and you'll remember what that was like. Um, so you had to interleave that into what was a ship's program. So the ship wants to do its own thing. All right, the last thing it actually wants to be doing is steaming into wind for an hour while you fly around flouncing on and off the deck. But they were some of the battles that you'd have to have on board the ship is to, is to talk them into doing what you as a flight needed to do to keep your operational capabilities uh, sharp. So it was a very, very different lifestyle group, I would say, you know, and of course, being thrust from the lower deck into the, into the wardroom, into the officer's mess, that was an entirely different place to be. You know, that was, I, when I was a, an able seaman, I would look at the wardroom and see it as a higher plane of people. Um, I thought it was all Eton old Etonians and, and plummy people and all the rest of it. And it was only when I got there that I realized that that wasn't actually the case. You know, there was a lot of really, really good, good, solid people that had either become officers from the outset or they'd move their way up or whatever, uh, you know, and equally a lot of really good graduates and, and clever people that were still pretty good guys. And you'll have seen it when you, hopefully when you went through flying training and you were blobbed up with all those different, the, the tri-service young officers, 
generally there were some pretty good guys there were some utter bell ends but you'll get that anywhere i guess you might need to yes, put that proviso yeah. about adult conversations on yeah no yeah we'll do yeah and to be honest you know, it's the same as any walk of life really you get good guys and you get a you get the less than uh you get the suboptimal ones i think suboptimal. Good point. so 99 you become an instructor yeah where did you do your instructor training so i was at shawbury on cfs so CFS is central flying school brackets helicopters so it's an raf run organization and they are responsible for creating instructors airborne instructors yeah so it could be pilots could be navigators could be crewmen they all have to go through the cfs accredited system in order to become a qualified airborne instructor. So you do your QHI course, it's about six months long. Fair amount of ground school in there to teach you how to teach on the ground and deliver lessons and take questions and ask questions and all the good stuff that you would have seen the instructors do. Um, then you have to sort of refresh on, refresh or convert to the squirrel because that was the aircraft we did it on. Some people have flown it before, some people haven't. And then you go into learning how to instruct in the air. And that's where the challenge is and actually, uh, some years later, I went back onto CFS as a staff member, and, and that was one of the best jobs I've done. Why? Well, teaching guys to, to fly who already know to fly, and actually who are already pretty good at it, teaching them meant that you had to be absolutely beyond reproach. There was no, when you and I flew together, Riff, if I'd made a hash of a demo, I'd have gone, yeah, well, you know what I mean? <laughs> It'll be all right, have a go. Um, you simply couldn't do that when you were teaching on CFS. Everything had to be absolutely spot on and word perfect, such that your student, who's a very experienced guy, can replicate what you've done. Uh, and I found that really, really enjoyable. See, I would find that terrifying. And one of the things that I remember from human factors was, was what they call the cockpit gradient. And for, for those who don't know, what, what, how would you quickly summarise cockpit gradient? Yeah, so you, you could be sharing a cockpit with somebody that is significantly more experienced, could be significantly higher than you in rank, could be significantly older than you. So there are many, many different types of gradient. But the fact is, you could be nominally in charge of the aircraft as the aircraft commander or the aircraft captain, and you've got somebody else who's a high-ranking officer and you feel that cockpit gradient so what it means is you feel less inclined to say things out loud less inclined to point out obvious mistakes or something that he or she may have done um, and situations have developed whereby an aircraft with two perfectly serviceable people in it and one as a as a, as a cracking instructor has let that aircraft get into trouble because he didn't want to say anything at the right time because of the guy being an admiral or an, or an air commodore or something along those lines. So that, that in a nutshell is copyright. So did you ever feel, did you ever feel that you were in a position that as the aircraft commander, you've signed the, what do they call it? The F-700? Yeah, there we go, F-700. Um, for anyone who's, who's listening, the F-700 is basically like signing for your car if you go to Hiawa. Um, so you sign for your aircraft, and it is then yours. We'll talk about maybe another time signing for aircraft and then flying a different one. As a friend of mine recently, <laughs> nobody would ever do. That. <laughs> no, <laughs> I know someone very recently did. Um, however, I never did it. Um, 
with where was I? Yes, signed. Uh, so you signed for it. You own the aircraft for the period that you're operating it, and you, as a central flying school instructor, have taken up, and I'm sure you did, someone who is a significantly higher rank than you, and potentially, and or someone where the personal relationship either doesn't exist or is very rigid and there's no flex for for any kind of light humor the things that make us human as we interact yeah, yeah. so almost like almost robotic did you ever find yourself in that position where it made you uncomfortable yeah, no i mean do you know what i was really lucky grip because when I switched into instructor mode, I was absolutely in instructor mode and it didn't matter who I was sitting next to. And I guess part of it was the fact that I didn't really care about my career. I was never going to be a career officer. Um, and we'll talk about, you know, how far up that ladder I got later, but it was never my aspiration to become a captain or an admiral or anything like that. So I never genuinely had any worries about telling somebody that they were doing something wrong. And if I didn't like it, then, then that was that. Now, you have to be massively tactful. There's no two ways about it. Um, and I found about more about this when I became standards officer. So for, to just explain that all, all, of the, all of the aviators in tri-service are, are assessed pretty much annually by a standards officer just to make sure that everything is hunky-dory, they're flying in accordance with all the regulations, all the publications, um, and they're a good, sound, solid set of flying hands. Now, of course, um, when I was a trapper, and that's what the Navy calls them, a trapper, um, I'd be flying with very high-ranking squadron COs who probably, through no fault of their own, wouldn't get enough time in the cockpit because they're just overladen with all of the admin that goes on with running the squadron. Now, clearly, they'd have a bit of a workup package before they got to, to the standards visit, but I'd end up flying with them, and often they weren't that good. And that, that was the art. The art was in telling them that, that they were a bit shit, but without telling them that they were a bit shit. So, um, and the way sounds familiar. It, sounds sounds I'm, remarkably I'm, familiar. No, no, no. no. In fact, I've, I've got my logbook here, interestingly, and I'm just giving And I've just been looking at your your nice. Uh, um, thanks. However, that's not that's in no way related to the shit comment. Yeah. Um, um, but. Uh, yeah, so what I used to say was I used to say, sir, I think you and I both agree that probably wasn't quite where it needed to be. And that was the line that I would trot out. And of course, there you're then putting the onus on that individual to challenge what you've said. And of course, their inner moral compass should say, actually, yes, Mark, you know, you're right. It was a bad day. I did. I wasn't flying very well. And um, perhaps we can be convinced tomorrow. That sort of thing. All right. So it was, it was more tact and delivery rather than a cockpit gradient. I was really, really lucky insofar as I never really felt as I struggled with it. Um, I did have one absolute classic though on CFS, which you might laugh at. Um, and it was, it was the notorious Lemmings Day. And Lemmings Day is where you, you have a day of aircraft turning their own engines off and landing in a controlled fashion in a field. Um, and that's all part of the teaching of the course. So in the morning I would teach a student instructor so he would be the student i would be the instructor i would teach him how to teach engine off landings so what's so an engine off landing so an engine off landing you basically fly in at about a thousand feet 
um, above, above ground to an airfield, you would then close the throttle and then you would use the inertia in, in what the aircraft does because the helicopter, contrary to popular belief, will still fly, albeit it'll be going down without an engine. All right, so that air coming up will turn the rotors around. You've got an, an element of control. And what you're aiming to do is to, as the height reduces, is to reduce that speed such that you can, you can have a gentle running landing on the skids uh, and everybody steps out and goes for team metal. So um, I taught in the morning, the two students then go off and practice it on each other over lunchtime. And then in the afternoon, they then both give it back to me. So um, I was, uh, and of course, what I'm going to do, because I'm in the second sortie, I'm pretending to be the student. So what I've got to do is inject faults such that the student instructor can then see what's going on, make a decision, take action and save the day. So uh, I was uh, playing the student, I was mid engine off, I was at around about 500 feet above the ground. Now, bearing in mind, you probably don't do too much to that aircraft until you get to around about 150 feet, assuming that your speed and all the rest of it is under control. Um, and it's, at, it's about 150 feet above the ground that you start to bring the nose of the aircraft up and that will gently decelerate the aircraft. It'll also get rid of some of that rate of descent and then you can level it and it will run itself onto the ground. Sounds simple. Now, if you start that process at 500 feet, clearly that's not going to work. All right, but that's what I ended up doing. So why is, why is it not going to work? So there are people at home now listening to this and they're, they're trying to gauge between ground level, 150 feet and 500 feet and what that helicopter is doing between that buffer of 150 and 500 feet. So if you do it at 500 feet rather yeah. than the stated 150, what's the difference in the, in, in the way that aircraft's going to... Well, what you're aiming to do, mate, is you're aiming to coordinate getting the speed of that aircraft back mm -hmm. whilst also building yourself some energy in what we term as the road to head. So they're, they're, that's the rotors that are spinning. They're only spinning by virtue of the fact that the air is coming up from underneath. So you want to maximize the energy in the head. You want to bring the airspeed back, but you've got to coordinate that with being very close to the ground because you need the extra controllability of the speeding head, if you like. Um, to, to finesse yourself close to the ground. If you do it at 500 feet and then you start to bring the speed back, you're going to be very high with absolutely zero airspeed. And then there's only one way from there, and that's down. And it's down, down. In, a, in a quite spectacular fashion. And the chances of you being able to regain airspeed and regain control and energy are very, very limited. So it's simply not going to happen. However, there is, a, there is a method of getting out of that and squirreling so far as the instructor can very quickly take control. He can either convert it to a different type of engine off landing, or he can actually re-engage the throttle and he can fly away. So I'm going halfway down and I'm thinking, right, I know what I'll do. I'll pretend to be a complete dollard, which is not too difficult, and I will slow the aircraft down at 500 feet and see what he does. So I did that. And from the left-hand seat comes a really good, robust, I have control. So he takes control of the aircraft. And, I'm, and I'm, at this stage, I'm thinking, good lad. Good, timely intervention, good skills. All he's got to do now is sort it out. Now, sadly, he'd done exactly the right thing insofar as taking control, but didn't actually have a plan and froze on the controls. So he's got control of the aircraft. We're still at, you'll remember, sort of 20 degrees nose up at 500 feet, with the airspeed plowing back towards zero, 
and he won't let go. As so, in death, death grip on the controls? Death grip on the controls. Oh, yeah. my God. And it's at which point I say, now this is going to get complicated. This time I say, hats off, I have control. Now, when you say hats off in a, on a CFS sort, what that means is any play acting, any role playing that you were doing stops there and then. Okay, so bearing in mind I was pretending to be the student, mm. I'm now back in charge. It's my aircraft. Give it to me because I need to sort this out. And I have to say, it took this particular young man a while before I got the controls back off him, to the point whereby there was a bit of a wrestle. And I think there was a bit of swearing. Uh, anyway, long story short, uh, I ended up getting the aircraft level um, and cushioned with the collective, which is the one that controls the pitch on the blade, and we hit the ground relatively hard. And, uh, and a chum of mine who was airborne in the circuit said uh, on the discrete frequency, all right, mate, that looked a bit tasty. Um, <laughs> and he wasn't, he wasn't wrong. So, um, yeah, we sort of hit the tail. The tail boom increased itself slightly. Um, the undercarriage had remained intact, which was good. Oh, wow. So, actually, it, the aircraft was not too bad at all. Um, we had then what's termed as the walk of shame, where you get out because you left the aircraft in the middle of Turn Hill. And you have to walk. You have to then walk from there to the aircraft tra air traffic control tower and and bear your soul to all and sundry. Um, but I think it was a real good indication of of. And I, I used to tell that story going forwards. You know, when I was teaching on CFS, this is what can happen. Yeah. You know, so all the obvious things with the student making a mistake or or this that and the other or, or him being a bit tired or emotional or distracted, all of that will happen. What can happen is the guy freezes on the controls and you end up having an airborne wrestling match to make you look over your guard. That's never um, ideal. No, not, not so good, that one. Not so good. I had a pint <laughs> after me. I'll bet you did. Um, Mark, uh, we're just going to take a very quick break and uh, go and get yourself in the style of Chris Harris. What was the last one he said? He said a wagon wheel. I think I'm going to get a Kit Kat. Kit Kat? Light and fluffy-ish. No, it's not light and fluffy. It's just how you dress it up, mate. It's still chocolate. Bugger. Yeah, it's a fair point. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go and grab myself a piece of celery. <laughs> and some Don't hummus. get in Nutella. And, uh... <laughs> All right, I shall but... see you after the break, after we've both eaten. Yes. Welcome back. Welcome back indeed, yeah. Sorry, I didn't just... know you just mentioned celery and hummus. Yeah. Is hummus bad for you? What makes you think that, mate? Because you said celery and then hummus, and I've eaten a lot of hummus this last yeah, week. No, 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 no. Well, I don't think it's bad for you, is it? I think it's... Um, please, don't tell, I, please don't tell me. Or am I thinking fat. avocado? Because avocado is massively fattening wild cats. But, but it's good it's, fat, though, isn't it? Good for, it's good, apparently, yeah. I, 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 what I'm not going to do, though, is get into a conversation about diets with you because I don't think either of us are, are really qualified. For a man, I mean, well, we, I don't know. For a man who is... We are not. For a man who has a, a much stronger jawline and a full head of hair and not saying you're old enough to be my dad, but at least a teenage dad... Um, uh, am I? Yeah, 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 I am, aren't I? Yeah. 
and yeah, still looks better than I do. I know, I know how old you are because you struggled to get it out when you spoke <laughs> to me the other day, which is quite amusing. Well, clearly I'm very conscious about it, so let's not bring it up. So before the break, you were talking about instructing and the, the joys of, of wrestling controls from students. But just before that, you mentioned that you realised at a certain point in your career you weren't going to be a career officer. What is a career officer and why did you realise you weren't going to be one? So in, in the Navy, you tended to have one of two types of aviator. Um, so there were those that were going to do it for their entire career. And rarely did they get to anything above about a commander level, which is Lieutenant Colonel. Um, how, long would you, how long would you have had to serve to get to Lieutenant Commander-ish? Well, if you if you went down the career route, let's say because the the other the other half, in fact, we'll come to that in a minute, because the other half of the of the aircrew cadre was were career officers. So they would routinely they'd join up as as a as a warfare officer. So they would be driving ships and principal warfare officers and all that sort of George, and then they dabble in aviation. So they probably do one or two tours as a as an aviator, disappear off, do some more ship stuff, and then quite often come back as a squadron commanding officer. So they're relatively low on aviation experience, but they've got a lot of naval experience. Really good for the career um, to be a commanding officer of a squadron. Some of them, I have to say, were absolutely brilliant. I mean, really very good. They knew their own limitations as aviators, and that was really important, but they could definitely manage people, they could manage budgets, they could do all the things that you know a commanding officer needs to do, um, and they would take advice. On the odd occasion, you would get one that thought he was better than he was, and that was, that was the dangerous combination. So I, I knew in my heart of hearts that I wanted to fly for my career. I didn't want to go off and drive ships. And, 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 and of course, inevitably, it involved staff jobs as well. So that meant going and working in the Ministry of Defence in London or at Northwood at the fleet headquarters or something like that, which is just, just wasn't me. So then I was offered this absolute golden ticket, which was what we termed as FTCA. So that's full-tier career brackets aviator. And what that meant was you could spend your entire career up to the age of 55 in the cockpit. It also meant that your rank was frozen, but your pay continued to rise and it went up every single year. All right. So there I was frozen as a lieutenant commander. Now, could I become a commander? I think there's a better than even chance I probably would have done at some stage. So, you know, that probably would have been... I think I could have done that at the age of about 38, maybe 37, something like that. Okay. But I was a lieutenant commander then, and I was going to stay a lieutenant commander for the rest of my flying career. But it suited me down to the ground, mate, because I was literally had nothing else to do than fly and instruct and do the thing that I loved. And, of course, the pay went up, so I was, I was earning the equivalent of a much higher ranking officer. So uh, to me, and I hate horrible phrase, but absolutely no brainer. Why wouldn't I do that? So yeah. I did. Um, and I'm glad that I did. You know, I think there were a lot of people that, that sold their soul to a certain extent and went off and wanted to be the, the captain of, of HMS Queen Elizabeth, you know, to be, to be that career officer and didn't get there and found himself in a bum staff job really in the rat race of the London life. Um, yeah. And that's, and I think I felt for those people because there were some really good guys that sort of went down that route. Equally, there were some good guys that went down that route and made it all the way. I'm really glad they did. So 
uh, it's horses for courses. It's a very, very personal thing, for sure. It, for me, it rings a bell from a book that I once read, and I think it's familiar to you. And it's The Fighter Pilot Who Changed the Art of War by uh, is it Robert Coran, I think. And it's about yeah. Lieutenant Colonel John Boyd. You've read that book, haven't you? I have. Yeah. And there's one thing in there that, that sticks out to me, and it rings a bell. And I think it, it, it cuts across into probably most careers, never mind the military. And in it, he states, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but he states, you can either be something, sorry, you can be someone or you can do something, but you can't do the two. And so you can either aspire to get to the very top for the, you know, for the prestige, for the, uh, for, how would you, how would you call it? You know, sitting at the top, the notoriety, or you can achieve what satisfies you and, and that's it. And that's enough. And you can let all of your contemporaries you can you can come to terms with your contemporaries overtaking you in terms of the you know in the in the career terms but i know that a lot of people have that internal fight because especially in the world that we live in there's always this aspiration to progress further higher earn more you managed to get a career there though well, your pay did go up, but you, your, your rank was frozen. Well, yeah, what and point? Got... Say again. Really fortunate that that's the way it felt because yeah. it, it, to me, it was the ideal solution. But you're absolutely right. You go through that inner wrangling of, because the pressure to perform and the pressure to be a high ranking officer and do well and all the rest of it, I think it, it's becoming more and more commonplace now that people have this perceived pressure that they need to do better than they're doing. Mm. And your point about was the fact that if you're content in within yourself and you're living within your means and you're happy, you know, you, you really need to make the most of that part of your life because I'm sure lots of people look back with regret and say, do you know what? I spent X amount of years doing something I absolutely detested but I felt as though I had to do it. When actually for a pay drop of, I don't know, five or 10 grand a year or whatever it might be, I could have been doing something that I really enjoyed and I'd have been happier at home and, 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 you know. So I think that's really, really, really valid. Because you and I both ended up in jobs post the military whereby we weren't necessarily happy. And there's nothing worse. That's incredibly true. And that's not to say that I'm unhappy in my current job. I quite like my current job. But yes, isn't that true? You, you're almost like a, a fly going towards the light. And then as soon as you get to it, it, it zaps you. Um, you're right. And, and I think it was, it was Shiro who said uh, on the previous podcast, you know, about being job snobs. You, yeah. you, you know, you, you want to get this, per, this plum job when you leave the forces. When the reality is you could go in a, a couple of levels below Chances are actually that because you're a military guy, you've got those broader capabilities that will be that will be picked up really quickly. So the reality is you'll probably get offered progression, 
um, potentially. I mean, not all companies are very good at that sort of thing. Um, but you don't have to go for that dream job. You know, you've got to be happy and not worry about what everybody's thinking about you on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram and all the rest of it, because there's nothing worse. And that's the, the biggest problem I think we've got, Griff, is there's a shop window into everybody's world. And it, you, you're, you feel constantly under scrutiny. And actually, if you're not posting on Facebook and Instagram and all the rest of it, people think there's something wrong. They think you've, you've taken a massive tumble and you've, you've fallen on hard times, when the reality is you're probably just a bit tired of social media. Yeah. Christ, yeah. I, jo- I left Facebook a, it was like two years ago. And do you know what? I left Facebook because I had an argument with my cousin. Is it two? No, God, it's even further. It was about 2015 that I left Facebook. I had, a, I had an argument with my cousin on Facebook, a cousin who I loved dearly, yeah. over something utterly ridiculous and childish, and it was probably politics or a different point of view. And it was at that point that I realized Hang on, this isn't. I mean, this isn't the relationship that we have. And so I just left it, and it was quite nice. Yeah, I joined Instagram, and I've left Instagram since. And now I'm just in the Twitterverse, which I find is just the most bizarre forum of people, incredibly bright and interesting people, and people who I. It's almost like they're parody accounts. Like they're intentionally trying to come across as utterly devoid of any emotion and sensibility. Anyway, so that's, that's a, a smaller rant going off on a tangent. Um, so I, can, I want to touch on, on when, I don't want to say when I came into your life, but that period of your career, circa 2012, Army pilot course 152, I think it was, and 151 ahead of us. So you had the obvious, you know, the big characters that I, I, won't, I won't drop his name in here, but you know who I'm talking about. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and he will know if he listens to this. He'll know that he we're does, talking I about I hope he does. I hope he does. <laughs> Is he narcissistic enough? Yeah, I think he might be. And just the most glorious, loud character you've ever known. And I remember when I first met him, because he started off as a Lance Corporal and then went commissioned. And the first time that I met this guy, I was still Household Cavalry, and I was repulsed by him. I just wanted... he He was not my cup of tea. And I think by the time we'd got to Shawbury, so three months later, I, I just wanted him as my best friend because he was loud. He was, is loud and gregarious and is full of the joys of life and constantly looks like he's about to burst a blood vessel. <laughs> Whether he's happy, angry or sad, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so we, I'm just going off on tangent because I like reflecting on, on him. Um, we, we enter your, your world. We enter what we believe is 705 Chop Squadron. Now, explain to people what it meant by a Chop Squadron or a Chopper Squadron. 
Yeah, so so the, the common misconception here would be that Chopper has something to do with either helicopters or penises. Um, I don't think he had anything to do with that. So effectively, there were two two squadrons that ran parallel on within De Defence Helicopter Flying School. One was an army-themed squadron, if you like. That was 660 Army Air Corps. And then you had 705 Naval Air Squadron. So they both taught the same syllabus. Um, but they just happened to mirror each other. One was owned by the Army, one was owned by the Navy. Now, 705 had got this previous um, reputation of, of being a harder squadron to get through insofar as you were more likely to get chopped. And by chopped, I mean withdrawn from training. So you'd, you'd have a series of, of warnings given to you, and then you'd get to the point whereby the Queen was no longer going to pay for your flying in, in her service and her serviceable aircraft, so she would ask you politely to leave. Um, and I think it was founded on probably history well before I got there. Um, and, and the more I look back at it, and this is, it sounds slightly odd because I'm talking face to face with you now, but the time that I was there and the time that your lot were there and the peripheral activity was one of the most enjoyable times I've had in, in certainly in, a, in an instructional environment because your course and the courses that surrounded you just had what I wanted from a course. So you had some huge characters, uh, but even the less overbearing ones were just brutally funny. Um, and the course camaraderie, and, and actually professionally, what I got from you guys was you didn't leave anything at all on the table. You, you absolutely gave it your level best. And I, I don't think anybody works harder than than a, a military student in flying training is a fairly, it's not physically difficult, but mentally, and, and, I, and I think from a pressure perspective, it is it's constant, isn't it? You know, it's, it is, it's undeniable that it's, it's designed to be a pressured environment. But I think, I think the balance that was struck on 705 was that there was a, there was a real work hard, play hard element to it. Um, and, and if the boys were doing really, really well, then by God, you'd go and have a beer at the end of the day um and, and and enjoy it and enjoy the weekends and and, and you know but, the, but there were times when I, and, and i think we spoke about this before i'd have to stick my head in and say will you just go home because yes. you like to be there until seven eight nine ten o'clock at night planning and doing and not not actually living your lives but but it's easy for, for somebody who's been flying for 20 years at that stage to say go home the point is all you can think about is getting those wings on your chest yeah and that's that thing that you as an instructor need to be aware of the importance of what you guys were doing there. But I just thought you embodied everything I wanted out of students, which was a huge amount of fun, loads of hard work, respect when it was required, good banter. It was it was just magical, really. One, one of the things that we, and it's very kind of you to say, so one of the things that we found, and we have spoken about 705 several times fondly when we've got together, is that we were treated as part of the staff, as we would expect to feel on a squadron, as students. Whether, whether the officers were straight out of Sandhurst and straight out of the course or someone like me who'd done 10, 11 years in the military, you were treated as though you were on a naval squadron. And all you had to do was take on board what was being taught to you, replicate it to the required standard. That was it. You were going to pass. And there was no, I'm going to refer back to it, the, the cockpit gradient wasn't wasn't there on the ground and and i never experienced it in in the air either i don't think anybody did it really was a remarkable 
grouping of instructors. And it was tri-service, as you mentioned, so Army, Navy, Air Force, and, or in the correct order, Royal Navy, Army, Air Force. And it was the first time that I'd properly worked in a tri-service environment. And I had my reservations. Someone told me that I was going on to a naval squadron. Stomach turned out. Purely army or nothing. And then after, you know, the first 48 hours, realized, you know, this is, this is the squadron you need to be on. And I do remember being on some of your, your debriefs. And you are excellent at letting somebody know they're suboptimal, but making them feel good at the same time. Uh, and that's a skill that I, th- I, I like to think I've taken forwards. Um, on my basic handling check, you gave me a C minus, which I knew was a pass. It was a scrape. Oh, it was a scrape. And I even know why, because I wasn't using markers uh, on looking ahead. I think it's sometimes like 30 degrees off. Anyway, tangent. Um, but yeah, so even I, so I took something from that. And I was a 27, 28-year-old know-it-all who'd done 10 years in the Army Block. And I really, I really enjoyed it. And, and it was, without doubt, the best six months of my army career, hands down, because of the people in it. And, and it proved, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. It's the people you're with. And very much, it's not the destination. It is the journey. And that yeah. sounds really, you know, twee. And, but, but it is true. Right. And I think it's really valid, mate. And, and the point is that as an instructor, you are more likely to go the extra mile for somebody if you think within, you know, inside of that flying suit with somebody that is, a, is, a, is fundamentally a good guy, somebody that's working hard, somebody that will do the right thing. And I know that we've mentioned that before, but as a package, you want somebody that you can you can identify with and you'll give them a bit more you'd like to think as an instructor you'd be completely impartial and everybody gets the same service the reality is we're humans and and if you warm to somebody you want them to survive you know you will say look let's give this guy a little bit more come on he, he only needs that bit more and he'll be there now, i'm not saying that was you for by any stretch but you know the, the, i've come across people that you would want to give them what you can to get through but equally if somebody was if, so if i got irritated with somebody in the cockpit that was never a good sign because I'm a very, very mellow individual. And if I got irritated, the chances were that part, that, that sort of wasn't going well and it wasn't going to be a, a favourable debrief. I don't like being irritated in the cockpit. What would irritate you in the cockpit? Um, arrogance really irritates me. Somebody who thinks they are better than they are. And, and actually, of course, when you're teaching, it, it's relatively easy to prove that they're not quite as good as they think they are not by you being clever and you showing how good you are but by putting them into a position whereby they they unfold and they unravel and it's they're not they're not quite there um yeah and and it's just for me you know me i'm very very interpersonal i love people i love chatting to people i like getting on with people but if if somebody rubs me up the wrong way then they'll have done it for a reason and deep down i know there's something wrong there Um, Irritation or hate it. Are we allowed to talk about solo barrels? Well, yes, I think I think you and I are both safe. Um, <clears throat> so the Explain tradition of the solo barrel. Yeah. The, what is the, the solo tradition barrel? of the solo barrel was that 
on sending somebody solo, which is a huge thing, isn't it? I mean, you, you will remember your first solo, and I certainly do to this day. Um, then there is a celebration. So when everybody's done it, um, in its very distilled version, you have a barrel of beer, you have a few drinks, you have a laugh, you're probably not flying the next day, or you wouldn't be flying the next day if you're having a lot to drink. Um, and it's a celebration of, of reaching that milestone. Now, the biggest problem we had was that these solo barrels grew arms and legs. Actually, that's a huge understatement in, in your case, because you're, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite as extreme as your solo barrel. Um, I'm pleased to say I don't think it would any in any way count to any sort of initiation ceremony or bullying. But Absolutely not. But Everybody volunteered. Just keep drinking um, and doing these outlandish tasks <laughs> whilst being dressed as a as a woman, I think. Yeah, that's the one. And then and then crack on never night out afterwards. <laughs> or not in, in a few of those cases. Um it was it was enormous. I mean yours was I I, I think I was the, the, the duty grown up there, wasn't I? Um and you, you the, were yeah, you you were you were the duty grown up whilst we were on camp. But I know once we got down into Shrewsbury, <laughs> wheels came right off. But I, we had one we have one guy who simply didn't make it out. I think it was half past four in the afternoon. He was utterly hoovered, wandering mm. around, wandering so around park in a dress, in a dress. Yeah, yeah, I remember well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What anyway, amazes me, Griff, is that no, no we, there was never any comeback on them. I'm gobsmacked. There, there, was, there was not one person on camp or off camp or anywhere went to the grown-ups and said, Do, have you any idea what happened on 705 that afternoon? <laughs> and we all pitched up the following day for ground training, whatever it was. Not a sniff. Well, we didn't. We went and did uh, voluntary work. We went walking That's dogs right. at the Didn't Dogs you go Trust. Paint a house or something? No, no, we went walking dogs at the Dogs Trust. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I had, I had a very important external meeting somewhere. Oh, is that right? Uh, the following day. Yeah. <laughs> that was, yeah, Christ, memories. I wonder if that still goes on in terms of, uh, because let's face it, I want to make a clear, clear statement. It is nothing like, it is nothing like an initiation ceremony at all whatsoever yeah. because i am vehemently against them this was a celebration make no two doubts about it a proper celebration because i think for about a week the course had slowly been getting their solo flights done i don't know who's the last to do it but on that and i remember this was the real there's about 10 people on the course and we waited for that last person to land and you, everyone's you know, up against the windows. You're watching the aircraft land. You're watching them shut down, and you're nervous for them. You're sweating in your flight suit for them. And just by the way they get out of the aircraft, whether they hold their head up or hang it, everyone goes, oh, ooh, this one's touch and go. And it's like, no, come on, come on, come on. We're really on the solo battle tomorrow. And then they go out, and they have the debrief. And about an hour and a half later, they come out sweating. And it's like, well... And they look like they're about to burst into tears. It's like, I got to see, but I passed. And we're like, doesn't matter, mate, a kill is a kill. Whether you killed them with a, you know, a single bullet or a hatchet, a kill is a kill. <laughs> it's like, yes, the solar barrels are on. Um, and that, that really was part of you know, building that, 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 
the bond in, in the team. Um, as, as we've said before, it's, it's teams bond when they're not under duress because we weren't under duress when we when when you're when you're working hard together under stressful times. Yep, it doesn't have to be traumatic. Um, it can be enjoyable, but when when the the odds are stacked because the odds are stacked against you, there is a very steep learning curve that you need to stay generally on. Yeah, there's a tiny bit of fudge left and right, but you you've got to stay on it. Anyway, so that's enough of us reminiscing down uh, down memory lane. You you became a you, you became a lieutenant commander flying fast jets. Yeah, yeah, that was all a bit weird, really. So um, I'd left Shawbury and I was due to go off to teach, so to continue instructing, but on elementary flying training. So on the, on a small fixed wing propeller driven thing, mm. um, which was having a few technical issues at the time, and so far as it kept spitting its propeller all over Lincolnshire <laughs> whilst people were in it, which wasn't ideal. So we got grounded, and, and effectively I was left without a job with an unknown period of time. So I couldn't really commit to anything else. Uh, it was really just wait until the grob is fixed and then you can start doing what you're doing. So um, knowing as many people as I did in the military, I said, well, look, what I'll do is I'll go and embed myself down in, in Yeovilton, and I'll sit with the fixed wing team down there. So Naval um, Flying Standards fixed wing um, had, a, had a few Hawk jets. And I, what I thought I'd do is just go down and get immersed into, into fixed wing and get my head out of rotary wing. So for those that don't know the difference, um, rotary wing is obviously helicopters. So the, the physical aspects of flying are very, very different to flying a, a, what's effectively an airplane. Um, and some of the some of the techniques and some of the rules and regulations are slightly different. So I took the time to go down there, ended up spending a lot of time in the back of a hawk. Um, and it was then floated to me that I should potentially consider going down that route. So um, so I did. So I did a series of flying courses and all of the associated medical stuff and the centrifuge and the, you know, the hypoxia chamber and all that sort of stuff that you have to go through. Um, to then go to RF Valley to do advanced flying training and then tactical weapons training in, in, on the hall. Um, and it was all going very well. And then I damaged my neck doing air combat. So air combat routinely involves a lot of G-force. Uh, and actually, aviate, military aviator spines aren't very good because they've sat in a variety of, actually helicopters are worse than fast jets, but you sit in a vibrating helicopter for, 20 odd years then your your back is not going to be in, in a good shape so um anyway so i'd, I'd gone in and had a, a bit of a, a a g fest as we call it so you're pulling a lot of g so g for those that don't know is is a measure of acceleration so when you're standing on the ground you're at one g and that's the force that's keeping you on the deck when you're pulling eight g for example well let's call it seven because that's kind of where you sit out in a hawk then every part of your body weighs seven times more than it does, all right? So if you take a human head off, for example, and put it on a set of scales, it probably weighs about 10 kilos because the brain's quite heavy. And double that for mine. It's pretty Double that for yours, Griff, yeah. So it's walking <laughs> 20 kilos in there. So if you were pulling 7G, mate, you'd be up at a, your head would weigh 140 kilos. Um, for me, my head would just weigh 70 kilos. Um, but the point is, you're, you're sitting there with the weight of another human being on your shoulders, which you're trying to turn around to, to look out the window. And look to it. Now, this isn't a sob story about fast jet flying, because lots of people do it and don't fall to pieces. I was, un, I was unfortunate. I don't think it was a pre-existing injury, um, but I had effectively herniated two discs in my neck 
quite spectacularly. And then went through a series of rehab and went down to Headley Court, spent a month down there to try to get fixed, which is a hugely humbling place to be. And we can talk about that later on a separate one if you want. But um, there was just no fixing me. And to the, to the point whereby I went to a medical board and the board said, you do not put another flying helmet on ever again. So that really was the end of it. That, that made that decision for me. So that, as I said at the very outset, the Navy had asked me to stay on and be a staff officer and, and all that, which wasn't my thing. So, so I made that decision to, to leave and, and, and forge another career. But the fast jet flying itself was, was quite phenomenal, really. You know, to, to teach an old dog new tricks at the age of 47 then, um, to jump in a fast jet and, and operate it at a reasonable level was hugely satisfying it was immensely pressured it was being back in flying training albeit i've got to be honest you know the staff on every every fast jet squadron i were on were brilliant you know they acknowledged me for what i was which is a five thousand hour rotary guy but actually, how many hours you've got five thousand it is yeah yeah so it's a it's a fair amount of flying but um they recognized that you know they they grasped that bit but they also knew that i still had to make the standard so um so that was that but it was it was it was a brilliant experience and i and you know again talking first solos i will never ever forget my first solo in a hawk i mean it's it's utterly bonkers to be to be to jump in a jet that disappears off at seven miles a minute and you're you, you've lost another county before you know it, and then you're doing something, you're doing other stuff, you're coming back, and you can you can you can achieve so much in an hour. It's it's unbelievable. Um, so no, it was a fabulous experience. It's a shame it, it ended when it did, but actually it wasn't like I was a 19-year-old that was starting from scratch and I'd lost that chance. I'd had the chance, I'd done it, and my body just couldn't handle it. When the doctor said to you, you will not put on another flying helmet. How did you feel? Oddly, I felt I felt quite relieved because I'd been I'd been going. This had been going on for some months, and I'd been a bit of a spare part. And I guess to me internally, it was a feeling of relief because I had some justification of of why I hadn't been flying. There was a resolution there. Somebody had said to me, right, mate, you're damaged. You are absolutely damaged. You can't fly again. And that for me was a little bit of a relief insofar as it justified what, what I've been doing for the past six months. But equally, it kind of gave me a very clear direction on what I was going to do, which was you're leaving. You are going to leave and you're going to go and do something else. You've had a brilliant, brilliant time, but now's the time to look for something different. So, it, yeah, it was... It was sad, but I, was, I wasn't sat there crying in my cabin that night, I'll be honest. I was kind of relieved. Really? It's that surprising. But then I suppose after the period of time that you'd done in service, I mean, had you even considered leaving service before you'd, you'd injured your neck? Or did you see yourself doing it up until you were 55 and then have a nice long retirement? Absolutely. You know, the plan was to stay until I'm 55. In fact, now they've extended that 60. So I could have been really? flying until I'm 60. Yeah. Wow. Um, Does, that that was it, you know, Does that include fast jets? Does that include fast jets? Yeah. So you have to have, so the, the Air Force will let you fly until 60 fast jets. Wow. And I'm fairly sure the Navy will follow suit soon. I mean, you have to have an enhanced medical. Yeah. So enhanced medicals for the oldies, and then you can carry on and fly. So that was the plan. Yeah. I, never, I never really thought about having to get another career, another job, or leave the military. Mm. 
just, you know, despite the fact I never wanted to be a career officer, I wanted to stay in the military. Um, yeah. But I was only going to do it if I was flying selfishly. Um, yeah. um, I had zero aspiration to fly outside in the, in the, in the commercial sector. Particularly having done, you know, the military flying that we'd done, you and I had done, was was very different to what anything would have been like in in the commercial world. So it, that was never an option. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I. But I guess the good thing was that because this the, the whole medical process took so long, I think I knew deep in my heart of hearts that this was not going to end well. So I started digging a tunnel and doing the things that I would implore everybody to do who's leaving is just do as much investigative work as you possibly can to find out about job opportunities outside. It's networking, isn't it? It's it's connecting with people. Oh, I mean, it it literally is, Griff. You know, and and if anybody is leaving and needs to talk about what to do or who to talk to or just to to sound somebody out, please, please, please do it. You know, because yeah. it, it you've got to talk to as many people as you can. To put it into context, when you left as a lieutenant commander, what was your role and responsibility? So you were a pilot, but did you have another? What other than fast jet pilot, you were Lieutenant Commander Mark Brayson of, and what what was your role? Well, I was I was a student effectively, so I was still, I was oh, going, you were still a student. Yeah, so I was going through. The I didn't know if you could command. Right. No, no, no. So I was going through the attack weapons course. The plan was for me to go from there down to the fast jet squadron in Cornwall. Period there and then probably go back into the standards organization right got you fast jet and rotary examiner yeah. so i wouldn't have been an, uh, an expert in in, in both but mm. you know i could have umbrellaed the whole organization yeah. that was the fact. but no i was a student on on 208 squadron yeah. up at rfle um going through the tactical weapons yeah. into the course which cool. is nails yeah i mean horrible so we'll so you're Lieutenant Commander Mark Brayson, you're leaving the Royal Navy, and what does Lieutenant Commander Mark Brayson do next? Well, he had a plan, um, and it was one that was a bit of a slow burner, um, but I managed to get in touch with a, a great British motoring manufacturer who I have a, a great deal of adoration for, so Aston Martin. I got hold of them, uh, and long story short, I basically said, look, I'll be leaving the service soon. This is what I've done before. I'd love to be involved in a customer-facing role. Have you got anything for me? Um, now, unbeknownst to me, the bloke who I'd written to, the chief marketing officer at the time, said, yes, get him in, because he was a massive aviation fan and a massive oh, military sure. fan. <laughs> what a bonus. All right, And when, that's what I was talking about when I said, you don't know what's out there. You know, yeah. there could be somebody that wants a person like you. So, but I was very, very lucky. I went and had a chat with him and the head of HR. And within 10 minutes, we agreed that I should be joining the company and effectively taking on the role or creating the role of uh, head of VIP operations. So I left the military in February and then March the 6th, 2017, I was stood on the stand in the Geneva Motor Show at Aston Martin uh, in their beautiful stand in the, uh, in the, in the Excel Centre. Uh, and it was quite incredible. Now, the good thing was I was there purely to meet people. So I was meeting the rest of the execs. I was meeting high-end customers. Um, and it was it was a slightly surreal experience. For somebody that's loved Aston Martin for so long, um, to be working for them was a, was a real dream come true. And the job, certainly from the outside looking in, must have looked like the, the dream job. You know, yes, it, it did. Was, 
it was quite incredible. Lots of travel, lots of high-end luxury events, sporting events, motorsports, all of the things, you know, with a good smattering of champagne and handshaking. Um, and it was a it was a really, really good two and a half years, I have to say. But the role changed slightly. Um, and it was no longer for me. So there was no there was no malice, there was no dramas. It was just one of those things that kind of ran out of steam. Yeah. Um, the company was going through a bit of a, a ropey time and still is at the moment, although they are they've got a slightly brighter future now. They've been they've had some real poor circumstantial stuff that's happened to them. Gotcha, you know, Brexit yeah, yeah. uncertainty, COVID. Yeah. Um, the general bottom falling out of the high-end sports car luxury market has, yeah. has really, really stymied their progress. So, um, but I think they're on the up uh, yeah. again. Hopefully, you know, I think as we come out of COVID, whenever that may be, um, I'm hoping that with the current investment that they've got, and certainly some of the personalities that seem to be getting on board, I'm really hoping they can drag themselves out of it because I've still got a huge amount of love for that brand. You know, I really, really do. Well, let's face it. I mean, so you should know the answer to this because you gave us the tour. How many, I mean, roughly how many owners has Aston Martin had in the past? Oh, crikey. Um, in fact, I'll tell you what, to save me embarrassing myself, your best bet is to, is to flash up the Drive Nation podcast and listen to Andrew Frankel. Yes. Because um, he lists them very well. Yeah. I mean, the, the point is about Aston Martin, 108 years old now. Mm. Um, and it's it's been bankrupt ten times, for example. You know, they've only made a profit ten out of the hundred and eight yeah. years that they've been doing it. You know, there's a litany of of ups and downs, I would say. But the point is, somebody will all, always catch them. But they've never really had a big umbrella organisation, apart from when they were under the Ford umbrella. Yeah, they're a little um, bit like the Red Arrows, right? They're British institution almost. Absolutely, you know, but you the two, the two are very very similar, and you know they, it's it's ugh, awful thing to say they're an iconic British brand. Yeah, clearly there's a very close relationship with Eon Productions and James Bond and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is, it's, it's bigger than that. It's there is a love for Aston Martin because it is a it's an independent British brand that that hand builds beautiful cars. God, yeah, uh, at, at a low volume. And, and I think that's key. I mean, they've only ever made around about 80,000 cars in 107 years. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? Because you, I mean, Toyota would build that in probably a week, I would imagine. So I think they've done it since we started talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was, it was a fabulous place to work. I've still got lots of really very good friends there. And good. I keep in touch with, with lots of people there. And, and I wish them nothing but, but the very best because, uh, you know, there's a lot of very bright people there who, are, yeah. who have been the victim of circumstance, I think, rather yeah. than anything else. And that's really nice to know that, you know, you, you left with, with happy memories um, and, you know, no, no animosity, no, no marks. As, you know, some people will leave their first or second or third jobs um, where having just left the military or or if you've never even been in the military they will leave with a really bad taste in their mouths um and it's it's unpleasant to say the least because you feel slightly betrayed but uh obviously you know that wasn't for you and you 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 possess one of these uh iconic british marks don't you yeah, I do. I, I'm a bit of a habitual buyer, sadly. So, in fact, you're, you, you were there when I bought my first one. Yeah. Um, when, you, when we were both on 705. And I, 
And I remember saying to my wife, I mean, I badgered her for so long about getting an Aston. And then she finally relented, but she said, well, this is it. This is the one chance. You do this again and I'll divorce you. I think, well, she was clearly lying because I'm now on my third. Are you on your third? I thought it was your second. Yeah, yeah no, I'm on my third. A car, that is not wife. Um, <laughs> and she's and she's still here so i think she lied on that one so yeah i bought a v8 vantage as my first one yeah. um which i loved and then i got out of it and ended up in a a manual dbs so the james bond did you i didn't yeah. know that yeah i had that for a while which was fab and then i had an option on a limited um one of 101 cars which was the v12 vantage roadster manual so for those that don't follow Aston Martin, it probably won't mean much, but um, uh, yeah, a limited run of, of manual roadsters. So roadster is a convertible in, in Aston Martin speak, yeah. depending on which model you talk about. Um, and it's just a glorious six liter V12 brute that I wrestle around the British countryside whenever I get the chance. And of course, sadly it's in the garage at the moment, um, under a cover. Uh, as I'm sure your beautiful Z3M is. But, um... <sighs> yes, it is. And I open the garage every single day and look at it and give it a stroke and <laughs> tell myself I'm not weird. Brilliant. Uh, Mark, we're going to start to wrap it up. One of the things, uh, I re- I, if you can give somebody who's leaving the military now, having signed off and they've got, say, six months to run, and they're, they're, they're walking into an incredible, you know, it's always uncertain, but really uncertain right now. What's the best piece of advice you can give to someone, soldier, officer, doesn't really matter what rank, how can they best prepare for civilian life going forwards into this? I think uh, make the very, very most of what's available to you in the forces whilst you're still in. So get everything squared away. Um, you know, all of, all of the people that are in the resettlement area should be focused on you now. You know, often you have to go and get that help, but they should be there, you know, even if they're working from home or whatever. So you should you should have a support network. I know often people um, have their own views on the resettlement system, but you, you know, ring every last drop out of it if you can. Hugh made a good point um, the other day, which is, if you don't have to leave, then you may want to consider hanging on for a while because, of course, the times that you're going out into are hugely uncertain. So if it makes no odds to you personally and the, and the military will keep you, and I don't know what, what Manning is like in, in the tri- across the tri-service environment now, but if they'll keep you on for another year, it might not be a bad idea. Um, get out there and get a job. Um, and as I said earlier, I think don't, don't necessarily aim for that top job within that company if it's not available. It may be that you go in at a slightly lower level and then prove your worth and, and move upwards. I think there will be some huge opportunities post-COVID because I think the world will be very, very slow to get back on its correct axis. And I think there'll be some vacuums out there whereby you can capitalise on it. But you've got to know what you want. Um, and please try and get a job that you can, you can stick at. But equally, if, if, you, if you're out and you're working and you're paying the bills and you're reasonably content stick with it but keep your eyes out for something that is that golden one that you really want to do um i don't want anybody to be unhappy in this world and work you should never be unhappy working but the reality is a huge percentage of people are and that's the worry isn't it but always remember you're a lot better than you think you are all of those broader military skills that you picked up across those years of timekeeping and having your kit squared away and and the moral compass that you've developed 
you're a lot better than your civilian counterpart. So you will very, very quickly be highlighted as somebody that's got additional skills that will just do the right thing. That's all I can say. Sound advice. Uh, and finally, what does the future hold for formerly and now retired Lieutenant Commander Mark Brayson? Um, well, currently, I'm spending more time in the gym than I've done in a long time because I have quite literally nothing else to do. <laughs> um, I, I'm taking on some really low, and this, this goes back to being happy, taking on some low-level car driving delivery type stuff, which means I can work when I want, where I want, for how long I want. It's hugely flexible, um, and it means that I get out of the house have a raison d'etre, but actually don't come home stressed at night. And, and actually, for me personally, at the age of you know over 50, that's quite nice. Ideal. Uh, if you want to speak to Mark more, then you can probably find him uh, leading the pack on a Brands Hatch indie circuit on Project Cars 2, whilst myself and CEO James Cameron plough into the first corner of pit lane. And, and I must just, I must just wave the flag for that because, particularly now, I think with the COVID bit, um, you know, the, the people will be feeling a bit isolated and yeah. a bit. I don't know what to do with myself and a lack of structure and all the rest of it. And there's only so many times you can try and banter your wife with the same joke. But the point is, you get a load of us online. I mean, I honestly have not laughed so much or as hard for a long time as when we were, you know, nine people or whatever it was sharing xbox friends it was just brilliant so guys and girls if you're out there and you want a bit of light relief please 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 join in with mission motorsport and uh, 27 races and get yourself online because it is just a huge amount of fun yeah massive thanks for 27 races you know nick nick trot and paul um utter legends mark thank you very much as always it's a it's just a bloody great pleasure chatting to you um i really wish you'd get fat but you won't and you just, God, you're good looking. Excellent. Mark, have a very good evening. And I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll meet online in the next 24 hours. Thanks, Griff. You take care of yourself. Mate, pleasure. Thank you. Cheers, Cheers. bye.